Welcome to season two of the Connect FCS Ed podcast. Each episode is geared towards recruiting, supporting, and retaining past, current, and future professional family and consumer sciences educators. I am your host, Barbara Scully, and I want to boldly celebrate families and careers with you. And welcome to the Connect FCS Ed podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I love hearing back from faithful listeners and welcome new listeners. If you enjoy the podcast, please help me in promoting family and consumer sciences education by liking, subscribing, and most importantly, sharing this podcast with your friends, families, communities, and your schools. The more listeners I have, the better off this show will lead us. Today, I have an amazing guest with me. Her name is Joyce Miles. She is a fellow Purdue University and Florida State University graduate. She comes from Jacksonville, Florida. She retired in 1997 from a long tenure as education administrator in family consumer sciences education, career and technical vocation education. Joyce Miles is a now retired and very happily traveling around and researching anything and everything that has to do with Ellen Swallow Richards. And she is also, you are the biographical researcher in Ellen's life. And what a privilege and joy to have Joyce here with me, just sharing her passion for our history and how relevant it is today in our body of knowledge when it comes to family and consumer sciences. So Joyce, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me today. Great, Barbara, it's glad. I'm glad to be here. Well, so I gave you that fabulous introduction, but I know there's more to you than your work experience and your your passion. Tell us a little bit more about you. Well, I grew up on a small farm in Indiana. I was active in 4-H. And that's what brought me to Purdue. Uh, I had a mentor in 4-H and she told my mom and dad, this is where I needed to be. So I did my family and consumer science education at Purdue, uh, married my Purdue sweetheart, and we moved to Jacksonville, Florida, where we lived for over 40 years. And that's where I worked. My professional career was with the school system there. We really did not like the heat in Florida. So we retired to North Carolina, where it is somewhat cooler most of the time. And we lived there for 11 years. But we always wanted to spend more time near the Purdue campus. So four years ago, we moved back to Indiana and we are within the shadow of Purdue University right now. It's about 15 minutes door to door from our house to the parking garage. And we, my husband uh, also retired from, he was a Purdue grad. And we spend our time when students are here, uh, working with students on campus as full-time volunteers. We have a number of advisory boards that we're on. We spend a lot of time with student life. Uh, Student life covers everything but sports and academics. So this is all the musical organizations, all of the housing units. We both lived in cooperative housing. These are small units, anywhere from 15 to 40 people living in one house, and they share the duties and learn all the life skills 
skills that many of us learned uh, at home. And today, uh, too many are not learning them at home. So we learned them in, in school. So we work with those students. There's about 400 students in 11 cooperatives. So I work, we work a lot with that. The pandemic, of course, was a blip on our radar, like it was on everyone else's. We were not allowed to be on campus. Uh, the students were sent home the first semester uh, in 20, second semester, actually, in 2020. And then fall semester, they came back, but we could not. So we learned how to Zoom and learned how to connect vicariously, of course, with all these students who meant so much to us. One other area that retirement allowed me to participate in, and that was women in philanthropy. I had a wonderful mentor here at Purdue, Cheryl, who taught me probably almost 30 years ago that women had unique abilities to give money and to give it in special ways. And so I've studied along with her and many other women who now are part of the, the national trend for women in philanthropy. So that is a joy. I love working with women and convincing them to support a passion. We distribute our money a little differently than men do, but we have money and we outlive the men. And so you can do the math with that. So we are a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> and I enjoy that part of my retirement, working with women in philanthropy. I'm also a fiber I'm also a fiber artist. I am in my studio right now. I do wearable art, mostly small pieces. I'm a want-to-be quilter, but I can't handle all the little tiny pieces and then the giant quilt blocks and all that. So I do small pieces. Mostly they go in auction to raise money for scholarship or I give them away to students. I do not get bored. I, I don't have many moments that I'm not busy, but I also put quiet time and reading time. I am an avid reader in every written word that's out there, so, including Ellen Richards and the history of family consumer science. I, I read a lot of other things too. So that's well, I a just little... have to say you're a powerhouse one, how important it is that you're volunteering and donating time for, you know, campus life and, you know, just helping nurturing and advising students in the betterment of their own lives because they're the, they're the wave of the future. They are, they are the future and they'll live to see a time that we won't see. So I, I, somebody made a comment this morning in the, the Jeff Bezos uh, trip to outer space. And I think it was, it was probably one of the commentators, but she was talking about the 82 year old woman who went to space and I'm only three years younger than she is. So I thought, would I have been out there? But anyway, they said, it's never too late to be what you might have been. Uh, so far, that's an anonymous quote. I looked it up and nobody's taking credit for it, but she always wanted to be an astronaut. Now that was not my goal, but uh, here I am at her age and I'm thinking, okay, what <laughs> what might have I been and should I still be working on it? But I'm, I'm happy in the, the journey that I'm on and I'm you know, very fulfilled with the young people we work with. Absolutely, you are. So I, I love that. Well, I guess you have just, you've answered already like my first question and you you are helping the history in the profession 
to be better understood is what you are doing already. And that's, thank you, I guess, is the, the first thing. Well, and I when I look back, at it, it, was a, it was a question that hit my mind right off was a lot of people are maybe questioning why we spend so much time looking at the history. You know, shouldn't we be looking ahead, pushing forward? And there's some thought to that. But I think in our profession, particularly, we have such a rich history and there's so many people practicing today who maybe don't even know that rich history. And the fact that the science background was so grounded. I mean, I think about the science courses I took uh, here at Purdue. I could have been a science teacher. In fact, one of my uh, roommates was a science teacher. Uh, that wasn't the way I wanted to go, but I certainly had the background to do that. I, I think that the more I did the study in the history, the more proud I became of what I chose to do for a life skill, a lifetime of working. I don't know that I thought about that when I was practicing. I taught for a very short length of time and then spent all the rest of my time as a supervisor for family and consumer science in a huge school system in Jacksonville. And I don't know that as, as I practiced that I actually thought about the science part of it. But for that reason, I think that history is important. And I think it's important that our practitioners today, particularly when many of them come from cross disciplines, they are not necessarily trained in a family and consumer science undergraduate program. And they come from maybe business and industry or they are certified and they have no idea. They know the curriculum. They know somewhat what we teach, but I think all of those people will fare better in their workplace and their, the future things that they try to do if they know more about our history. So that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm so relentless in wanting to share it, both with the Ellen Richards story, but just in general, our rich history of science. When does the rich history start? Well, depends on how, how far back <laughs> you want to go. What we talk about, particularly with Ellen Richards, starts uh, with her birth time, which was 1842. But about that same time, if you, anybody wants to do the research search, uh, Catherine Beecher was writing about domestic science. And she wrote uh, a book, which is available for free through Google Docs, about domestic science and what's in involved in running a home. So she uh, was talking about this in, in the 1850s. Ellen was born in 1842, lived through the Civil War and all the angst with that, uh, losing to President Lincoln. Um, she went to Vassar to school and then went to MIT. And so that was the beginning when we start tracing um, not necessarily the history of home economics, but how science was born and how uh, this woman was so brilliant to figure out the relationship between air quality, water quality, food quality, and the quality of life that people had in their home. And that if we could improve on that, then we'd have better family life, better communities, better workers, and a better nation. And she had all this in her mind in 1870. Well, the thing so, that I learned, so I've been very privileged to be part of a, I want to say an elite group of the AAFCS Leadership Academy. And you are, you know, on the, the board for that as well, advisor, mentor, and leader in that group. And 
I had no idea that Ellen Swallow Richards was, she, she went to MIT. That kind of blew my mind um, when, you know, sitting in on our leadership conference uh, regarding getting that information. I thought, I found I was, I was very, I was very taken a, a step back, step back and um, just in awe going, here's this woman during a time where women were to be seen, not heard. <laughs> she 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 fought a battle for all women and um when i i think today i'm still a little bit chagrined uh about uh some of the issues that women in science face that she faced over a hundred years ago and thought she had opened doors for women and yet um there's a, a video out there now that's put out by uh, the PBS been showing it called Picture a Scientist. And it's an excellent example of how far we've come, but how far women still have to go in their battle to become scientists in their own right. Uh, that we have minds that are just as good as anybody else in science and math and technology. And um, so that and it just kind of goes back to the scientists who uh, the the woman scientist, 83 year old, who just took off uh, with Jeff Bezos. Uh, right. Blue Origin, uh, the rocket. Um, and I think I recall reading an article. The reason why she was not allowed into the program was because she was a woman. Yep. That era. That's exactly true, because I, I didn't realize until today that she was in the astronaut training program and they weren't letting women go. And so she fought that battle, you know, here um, in a good part in the early, um, well, it would be late 1900s, the 20th century. She was still fighting for the, the right to do that. So. Um, I, it was wonderful that she got to do that. I think she is still over the moon. Um, and what a role model for young women today. And I think that's um, uh, one of the things that I think we need to keep Ellen Richards in the forefront is what a role model she is for young women today to study her a little bit and say she didn't have it easy, but she persevered and she just kept plodding along and look where we are today, you know, based on the work that she did. So that just, with talking about that, that just kind of leads me into my next question. <laughs> is there more historical research to be accomplished when it comes to Ellen Wallow Richard? Well, yes, I know the people who've done research, and I know Danielle uh, Drelinger has written the, the recent book on the secrets of home economics, and she brought a lot of the history forward that has up to this point really been buried quite deeply. And as I did the research, I was working in the early 2000, like 2006. Of course, we had the internet, we had access to that. I went to MIT, I went to Cornell, I went to archives and actually read the materials that were there. And I thought I'd probably seen every picture there was of Ellen and there there were quite a few but sometime in 2008 or 9 I received an email 
from someone in New Hampshire. She said, I'm with the Historical Society and we found an old trunk in, in a farmhouse. And once we finally opened the trunk and got around to looking to see what was in it, there was this journal in there. The journal was written by a woman named Eliza Hewins, Louisa Hewins. But she talked about Ellen Richards and she had pictures of Ellen Richards. And so this person was asking me how, if I knew how that material got to New Jersey or to New Hampshire for one thing. And who was this woman who was writing about Ellen Richards and publishing the pictures? So we did a, a quite a little bit of research. It turns out this person was a neighbor of Ellen Richards and they rode the trolley car together to go to work. Ellen lived in what was the suburb then of Boston and would ride down to the Back Bay, which is where MIT was back in the late 1800s. And they rode together. And so Ellen invited her to go on weekend day trips. And this was a journal, a handwritten journal of those day trips. It was the first time anybody had ever seen that material. I was beside myself. So in a, for, in a short answer, there's still more things out there. We don't know who has them. We don't know where they are. This opened, I just read the journal the other day. Again, I have a copy of it. It puts Ellen in a different light than the professional chemist and the woman, you know, working with all the men. And it, it was, it was a wonderful insight. So there, there is more to be discovered. Ever since I started doing the research, I have been on a mission to try to find the link between Ellen Richards and the FDA and the founding of the Food and Drug Act in 1906. She was still alive in 1906. I have found nothing that links her with Harvey Wiley. Harvey Wiley was a chemist, happened to be a chemistry teacher here at Purdue, but he went on to found the Food and Drug Act and they passed the Food and Drug Act in 1906. Well, I just have to think that she was connected with that, but somehow that connection is buried. And so is there more research to do about her history? Yes. And those are just two examples of more information that could be uncovered. Yeah. Uh, even, though, even though most of the researchers think they found it all, I think there's still letters to be read and archives to be dug through and more information about her. Based on your knowledge of Ellen and what research, what do you think, what researcher advocating do you think she would be working on if she were alive today? Well, I've thought a lot about this, trying to think about today's issues that she talked about uh, over a hundred years ago and how we still haven't solved them. She would be working very diligently, probably behind the scenes on climate change, although she she really wasn't into that, but she would realize that there was something that humans were doing that was messing up the climate. She would be advocating for more responsible packaging so that we didn't have plastic all over the place and styrofoam and all the things that will not biodegrade in two million years. You have to think about Ellen in the context and what was available in the time period that she was an adult from 1870 to 1911. It was a progressive era and a lot of things were happening. The, you know, the automobile, the electricity, all, all those things were coming, but they were not readily available necessarily. And so the communication was lacking. She did correspondence courses by handwritten or possibly typewritten to teachers so that they could learn how to do science labs. So uh, she would still be advocating for women in science. She would definitely 
definitely say that family consumer science practitioners need to step up to the plate with the STEM issues. We are science, we are technology, we are engineering, and we are math. There is no question about it. There isn't a course that we teach that doesn't have one or all of those in it. And yet we are bypassed as part of the STEM education. And, you know, if students are trying to get STEM credits, you know, do they take our courses and get the STEM credit for it? Not unless we push the issue. Food science certainly would be part of it, but so could a number of other of our courses. So she would be advocating for for so many things. She probably would be beside herself over the homeless issue. She would be advocating for that. She grew up in Boston at a time when there were a lot of immigrants coming in and these living situations, the sanitary conditions, the water were horrible. And so she tore into that and tried to fix those things by doing scientific studies. Well, she probably would still have a fit today when when we still are messing around with some of the same things. So she she wouldn't advocate on any different plane. I think she'd just step it up a notch. And I always wonder what she would have done with the internet and the ability to put people in a chain list and, you know, send one message and reach thousands of people. You know, I mean, she would have a Twitter account. She would have a Facebook account. She would, I don't know, maybe somebody needs to set up an Ellen Richards Facebook account and just pretend what I never thought about that. <laughs> Maybe, well, maybe there, hey, there you go. That's an, that's a, you're being innovative right there. <laughs> right. Well, um, I, there would be some reasons to do that, but she would jump. She would take advantage of all that. She was so busy that when you read about her activities, you swear up and down that she must've been four people because, you know, how could she be here and be there and be in the only transportation was train or the trolley car. So, or if she went overseas, which she did, there was a slow boat. <laughs> so it wasn't like we have automobiles today and our ability to communicate and to get around. So I think she would have a fit over the obesity rates and how it's impacting our health care and our health care costs. She was the beginning to learn about nutrition, you know, before the, the uh, nutrients ever had a name, you know, we call them proteins and carbohydrates and starches, but she was studying them before they ever had an, a name. And just that, today, that is something I, I never even considered. You're absolutely right. Right. Well, today was uh, an article talking about proteins, the best time for proteins so that you can build muscle mass. She'd be on that in a heartbeat. She also would be on things like textiles. I read something again, this morning about now we actually have textiles, again, technology that will sense our body heat and will actually cool us off. It will report, you know, health issues and things like that. They've been working on this for a long time. At Georgia Tech, I was on a panel with one of the men who was an engineer and was designing baby garments so that they would sense if a baby stopped breathing. Well, it was very, very cumbersome. But now this article this morning said they're weaving a thread in the garments that actually do the communicating about our, our health system. So she, she would be on all of those things. And I think she would be the consumer's friend. She would want consumers to be smart. Um, be the consumer report. 
is fit. Oh, abs absolutely. She would be. Yes. She would be on the consumer report. She'd be on the board of directors for good housekeeping. She, yeah. because she studied adulterated food. That's why I know that she had to have something to do with the Food and Drug Act because she found out they were putting sawdust in cinnamon, you know, just to expand it or whatever. Well, oh. and that just, and that brings up a very relevant topic that has been brought up in the news as of, you know, throughout this summer, Subway, you know, the national chain Subway, their tuna fish is not, it's got tuna, but it's got some other stuff in there too. So there, there is a lot of relevancy from a woman who has been dead for a century. And, oh, absolutely. Yes. And she is still at the forefront and there are, there's so much more. That See, she, she would have been practicing before we ever had labeling. Yeah. Uh, there's the stories about her working in her father's store and she would, they would come in and they'd order uh, saleratus or something, which was the same thing as baking soda. And then they'd order something else over here. And she said, I get them out of the same bag. She said, they're the same thing. And so she would have been hot on it for labeling and then teaching people to read the labels. You know, we take for granted the labeling that is now on everything. And I have learned to appreciate the barcoding on it now. I am a returning Weight Watchers person. And now with your little phone, you put the barcode up there and it tells you exactly how many points in that particular item. I mean, it's incredibly amazing. And so she would still be on the labeling issue. She probably, well, she'd be beside herself, I think, with the foods that are coming to us from unhealthy sources. Yeah. I fixed fresh fish last night at home and I almost quit because I read it came from Indonesia and I'm thinking, oh, do I really want to do this? <laughs> well, there's that in... I have a hard time because I, from my research and my own knowledge, when it comes to a farmed fish, you know, you're not supposed to be eating that because it doesn't contain the omega, uh, the omega acids that yes. bodies need. And that's all that's in the stores today. Our, our farm, right. In Washington, where we have Pacific Ocean and Alaska, we get the fresh stuff. It's not, it's not here though, at the same time. So right. Well, and you made me think of another thing. Thing that, that is currently, you know, very much an issue across the country. And that's the farm to table mm -hmm. using locally sourced uh, food that is doesn't have the transportation footprint on it. I She'd be all over this carbon footprint too. Absolutely. Uh, the fact that, and see, that was something that was not even thought of. And this, I just read this morning on my feed, I take the feed from the Boston Globe, which sometimes I'm thinking, why do I care what's going on in Massachusetts? Except that's where she lived and worked. And so I, I want to hear what they're talking about, but they're saying their landfill is filling up and they want to use New Hampshire for their landfill. And I said, well, only if New Hampshire is going to let you do that. But they weren't worried about where the stuff went, the trash, the whatever. They threw it in the street. And uh, that's why it was so unhealthy. But she would approve of farm to table. She, because of the lack of food additives, the fact that you know, we can pretty well count on uh, not necessarily organic, but just the fact the food was grown by this farmer. It didn't pass through a whole bunch of stuff and things added to it to make it last longer. Still, it's not perfect because farmers can do things that we don't always approve of, whether it's what they feed their animals or if they use uh, GMO products. And I, you know, that's a another whole discussion. She would have been on that too. <laughs>
Well, I hadn't thought about So did you have any idea how deeply you would end up being engrossed in the history, (laughs) drawn into the life and legacy of Ellen Richards? Because we could have this conversation, I think, for hours and me just listening to you. But in that you would just, and I know you would just, you would, you have so much wealth of information that you can have an all day symposium on symposium. Well, (laughs) back to your question. I stood up at an AAFCS meeting probably in 2002. We've tried to figure out where it was then. And I said, I'm going to play Ellen Richards for the centennial. That was seven years down the road, 2009. I didn't think about it for several years. And by 2006, Texas affiliate was asking me to come to portray Ellen Richards in 2007. And I thought, oh, I better get busy. So I, I started serious research in 2006. We, t- we took off. I started writing the script for the, the video, uh, The Legacy of Ellen Richards, and realized that this was in her own words. And I thought she is never going to say in her own words what a great person she was. So I have to do that in a documentary. And I found a, a young film producer in Maggie Valley, where I lived in North Carolina, and he agreed to produce this documentary. He says, but you need to go to New England and you need to tape all this video of where she lived and what, you know, all those things so that I can put this documentary together. So we took off for two weeks and went all over New England and did research, went to the archives to find out about Ellen, uh, did a lot of video, came back and funded the cost to be able to put that documentary together and realized when we finished that I could actually sell it as, as a DVD. And my husband looked at me and he said, who do you think's going to buy it? Well, we sold over 3,000 copies, so go figure that. And then decided that we would upload it to YouTube so that it would be available. And I didn't check this morning, but we'd had over 17,000 views on YouTube. So 17,000 people plus the 3,000 who bought the DVD. Well, um, on top of that, we're, we just now have to do a plug for your channel and the portrayal of Ellen Swallow Richards, because you can find it on archive.org or Ellen Swallow Richards. And did you, you also mentioned PBS, PBS video or documentary or something? The PBS documentary is called Picture a Scientist. Now she's okay. not mentioned in that. Those feature several current science women, some at MIT, believe it or not. And you need to find a copy and, and watch it because you will say, I don't believe this because those women are still fighting the same fight that Ellen fought in 1870 wow. to try to gain recognition as a woman scientist. So that's what what was on PBS. But yeah, when it comes to your documentary, uh, for listeners, please, uh, you can go to archive.org forward slash Ellen Swallow Richards, and you'll be able to watch, you can watch that video, that documentary there. Well, thank you for publicizing that, because uh, there are still people uh, who haven't seen it, like you said yourself. I was one Uh, of them. (laughs) 
had never seen it. And I think it's uh, it's revelationary and revolutionary both uh, for teachers to look at it and possibly share it with their students, share it with a science teacher. Go back to the, you know, your question, did I ever have a, a clue about what I would get into? I had no idea. I mean, I literally turned one bedroom in my house into Ellen's room. All of my archives things, I, I bought a lot of period pieces, uh, not furniture so much as small pieces that I could set the stage when I would do my, and then I actually, in addition to the, to the documentary, I did a 45 minute presentation, Ellen in her own word. And I traveled all over the country and Europe actually doing that presentation. So I had a, a 1911 costume made by one of your uh, Washington state uh, AAFCS members, Lindy Lombardo. And actually the, the whole room was turned into what Ellen room. My husband said he felt like he was sleeping with two women. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I did immerse myself in, in her. I've been to her home in Jamaica Plain. I haven't been inside it. That is still a goal of mine. It's a private home now. It's a, a National Historic Landmark, but it's privately owned. And so I've had conversation with the owner, but we've never quite agreed to have her let me see it. She laughed one day and said, well, I don't suppose it's changed much since 1870. And I said, oh, I'm sure it has. You have indoor plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> right. That would be would be a change but and I, I honestly thought when I was finished with the centennial in 2009 that I would you know fold up all of my Ellen things and you know put them away and I, I haven't I've still traveled to uh, universities to portray Ellen I and of course this last year with Zoom I did a Zoom Ellen information in at least three different states uh, Washington Montana and Georgia and maybe one of one maybe I don't know maybe Mississippi I'm not sure so with Zoom you know I can travel all over I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and learning more about Ellen Swallow Richards and also your ever going <laughs> I won't say everlasting or anything but it's a continuous it's a continuously growing process for you and for all of us but I'm I would love to ask you three questions so trying right. to wrap up and I like to try to see about giving tips, a gratitude response, and advice for our future FCS educators. So tip, what is one productivity tool or software that you use every single day? Well, you have to take all this advice and tips and everything else in context, realizing that I am retired. And so I am not be I'm not productive as... Um, a teacher. I don't have to do lesson plans. I don't have to write, you know, or anything like that. My one productivity tool is my iPad. I absolutely live and breathe by my iPad. I can read everything I want to read. I can store things. I'm learning every day. The storage challenges uh, finally paid for iCloud storage, <laughs> mm -hmm. but my iPad is, it goes everywhere with me. Um, and so it, um, I actually bought one with more memory, more capacity. It's my productivity tool. So whether it would work for your listeners, um, I don't know. What would we do without our right. ads and all the, all the technology that we have? Well, and I'm not saying that I have mastered it because I, I get so deep into a, a research project and I think, 
I should have started folders on this a long time ago. So now I have this pile of stuff and it's not in folders. So I'm still learning to do that. <laughs> okay. So question two, what has been your most important professional mentor or who? I, who? I've thought about this for a long time and two people, uh, Dr. Penny Ralston uh, was um, Dean of uh, the College of Human Science at Florida State, but I knew her through AAFCS before she came to Florida State, and I admired her as a professional woman of color who just appeared to have it all. We both grew up in rural Indiana. We didn't know that when we first met, but we grew up probably two hours apart. Um, but she was just certainly, she became president of AAFCS eventually and was dean at Florida State, quite a long tenure of dean. And I loved working with her at Florida State. So, and she's still working and I still talk to her. So she is definitely, and I send a lot of young women to her as a, a potential mentee. So that's one person. And I guess I, she has grace under pressure. And I think when I looked at people who were good mentors for me, those that's what came to the forefront. The second person was a former president of Florida State, Dr. Eric Barron. Uh, he is a president of Penn State University right now, but Eric Barron was there for only four years at Florida State, but I was on the FSU Foundation uh, Board of Trustees, and I felt like that he, he ran the university with the integrity that I was looking for, and he certainly also had grace under pressure. So two, two mentee, mentors who, who essentially, you know, shared some of the same leadership qualities. I love that. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure they will thoroughly enjoy hearing, hearing that. Question three, who, what do you wish <laughs> known when you started out in FC? <laughs> oh, I thought about this for a long time too. And it almost always goes back to the same thing. Uh, I was only in the classroom for less than five years. And the one thing that I learned when I left the classroom was there was an entire community out there that could have been such a benefit to me as a teacher if I had only known about it. So the advice would be, I think, for educators today in the classroom, and I know it's asking a lot when you have a whole handful of preps and with the COVID issue and everything, the last thing you're thinking about is an advisory committee or working with somebody outside, but there is so much value in that. It just community can be a wonderful asset to the classroom in just so many ways that I can't even begin to, to mention it. And I guess the other thing would have been if I had had more information about science, the science relativity. I mean, I had science background, but I didn't realize how much family and consumer science was science like it is today. So those two things, I guess. That's perfect because what you're saying is how I felt five years ago when I stepped foot into the classroom and reading on the, you know, the numerous Facebook posts, uh, threads, closed groups, all of it, it, you know, Instagram, Twitter, it's, this is a 
continuous problem, maybe, but teachers don't know. They don't know about the wealth of resources that they have at their fingertips of, you know, community. They have a community and we have to, even with my own service doing this podcast, we have to come up with more innovative ways in reaching out to them, letting them know and self-assuring them that you have a community of friends who are in the trenches with you. Right. And it should be part of your circle of influence. If you are do that circle of influence that I used to have teachers tell me it was too much work to do an advisory committee. I said, well, wait until they want to cut your program. And then you'll wish you had an advisory committee to speak on your behalf. And the more people in the community who are involved in your classroom, the more they can speak in, on your behalf. And so that would be one thing I certainly would include in new teacher preparation or extra credit stuff that you have to do, you know, after you're already a teacher. I, I would, I still would work on that a lot. Well, Joyce, this has been a privilege and an honor in discussing the history of Ellen Swallow Richards with you. And I know you have so much more to share. Is there a good contact uh, for listeners who want to you know, start the conversation with you to learn more about Ellen? Absolutely. Uh, my email is Joyce Miles, all one word, at AOL.com. Barbara Scully from the Connect FCS Ed podcast presents a fresh take on recruitment and support for today's modern home economics educators in the family and consumer sciences, FCS Classroom, sharing insightful stories, strategies, and resources in a fun and sustainable and practical way. Each episode focuses on a different aspect of modern home economics, from community engagement, leadership, classroom management, to lessons and more. Each episode brings a different perspective, offering expert professional development, interviews from a collaborative worldwide FCS community, with the hope that it will inspire and empower you to make informed decisions. Together, we are better at leading the way to student success with FCS.